Well, it is no secret that most young kids want to be big and do what big people do, even sometimes when it comes to church. Let me tell you a story. One day, a mother walked into her two sons' bedroom. The two boys were Roman Catholic, and the younger boy was kneeling in front of the older boy, practicing for his first Holy Communion. The mother was surprised to see that the older brother had a bag of mini marshmallows. And he would hold them up one at a time and say to his little brother, the body of Christ, to which the brother would reply, amen, and he would put it in his little brother's mouth. I think that the younger brother's first not-so-holy communion made him sick. Here's something you might be interested to know. The younger brother, my little brother, (laughs) the marshmallow priest was me. (laughs) Say I was always called to this thing. We've been studying communion for the last three weeks. The first week we talked about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. We talked about it being a Passover meal. Two weeks ago, we looked at the views of the Lord's Supper. We looked at the four major views. Number one, transubstantiation. Two, consubstantiation. Three, spiritual presence. Four, the memorial view. And now you have been introduced to the marshmallow view. Last week, we looked at the experience of the Lord's Supper, what's happening. And this week, the title of our message is The Necessity of the Lord's Supper. Well, let's look once again at Matthew 26, verse 26 through 30, which we've been fine-tooth combing the last three weeks. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. But I say to you, and then Jesus makes a vow to them, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, so they're on the move, most scholars would say, probably about 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Now, we've been saying all along that the Lord's Supper is meant to unite the body of Christ, meant to unite God's people, but has divided them in many different ways. And perhaps the biggest reason is uh, many of them claim that they are 100% biblical. This morning, for a little while, I want to challenge the notion of all the people that think they are 100% biblical And I want to point out that in what we get in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion is more of a description of what's going on than a prescription of the way that we are supposed to do it. It seems to me that it's better to look for principles instead of hard and fast rules or commands that simply do not exist. If you recall from last week, Jesus gave us one command, one. It's like, it's like God in the Garden of Eden says to the guys, just don't eat from that tree. One thing, that's all you got to remember. And that's the one thing they got wrong. Same thing for us. What was the one command? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But we've added on so much other stuff. 
For example, let me just go through a few examples here. And in the book of Acts, uh, well, at the last, the Lord's Supper, was during or after a meal. Is that the way we do it in the church in America? Not really. Here's a question. What kind of bread were they using? What kind of bread? I mean, most Bible scholars would say probably what happened is Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke off a piece and passed the loaf and somebody else broke off a piece after after that. Now, we would be thinking about this. And if you remember part of the meal, we said that they also took the bread and they've been passing it around other parts of bread around the meal, dipping it into the food and then into the sauce that they would make or the dipping stuff. And then they would be eating it with their fingers you can just imagine a bunch of us, if we were passing around on the bread, we are so cleanly, we'd be like, I wonder if they wash their hands. <laughs> what do we do with that? I mean, they were just dipping stuff, man. Were they dipping stuff? Are we allowed to use wafers instead? Are we allowed to use broken matzah? Now, some people say it can only be done in and with the church. I remember when I first got up here, I went to a bunch of pastor meetings and the guys were arguing about whether they could take communion among a bunch of pastors or it was only reserved for inside the church building. It was right then I thought, I'm not going to fit in up here. Yet this was an informal family-style dinner at the Last Supper. So they weren't doing it in the church. Well, somebody say, well, they were the first church. That's fine. So, so what do you do? You go on a hospital visit. And there's your friend. And your friend is dying. And they just say, you know, what I really would love to do is I would celebrate, I would love to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I would love to take communion. What do you do? Oh, I'll call Pastor Jim. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I would call the nurse and I'd say, I need some bread and I need some kind of liquid. I'll get a cup, I'll use tap water, I don't care. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're not told um, who can preside over the Lord's Supper. Does it have to be ordained clergy? I mean, really? I mean, people always ask me, they're like, so you're like a pastor. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm an ordained clergyman. I said, I have a plaque on the wall. I actually have two. The first one they made a mistake on. I hope the right one's on the wall. And I always say that and $5 gets me something at Starbucks. What, how about you? Does it have to be ordained clergy? It's really hard to say. Let me pose another scenario to you. Let's say that you're out with a bunch of your friends and, and you're all followers of Jesus and you are, you're even not, maybe not everybody is, but you're, you're camping and you're just overwhelmed by the beauty of nature and you begin to glory in the God of the cosmos, the creator of the cosmos. And then somehow the discussion moves to, can you believe he became a baby? Can you believe he died on the cross in our place for our sins? And you are just completely overwhelmed with the goodness of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. If you had nothing but marshmallows, <laughs> would that be okay? If you, if you didn't have, uh, you know, anything else but soda and water instead of wine, would that be okay? What about the wine anyway? I mean, is it a specific brand? 
I mean, should we all be drinking Manischewitz or something like that? <laughs> it's an old uh, episode of Frasier. He said, if you don't know how to make Manischewitz, just take good wine and pour lots of sugar in it. <laughs> I mean, do we all drink from the same cup like they did? All the germaphobes like, no, 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 no. Oh, we'll give you a rag to wipe it. I don't care. That rag, it's full of germs now. Do we, do we, do we dip the bread in the cup? Maybe somebody's fingers are going to go in. Some say only the, the priest can drink. Others say grape juice is okay because it's the fruit of the vine. Other people say, that's sugar and water. That's not the fruit of the vine. Is, it, is wine optional? Is that, is that what that means? Who can distribute the elements? The elements, the bread and the cup. I mean, is it, is it, is it something that, uh, that only the, officer, the male officers of the church can do? I know a lot of people who think that. I actually agree with Wayne Gruden, the uh, Bible scholar, who thinks that both men and women can distribute the elements. He says that it demonstrates our unity and our spiritual equality. How do we distribute it? I mean, really, do we do it the same way every time? Or do we mix it up like we did the past few weeks so it doesn't become routine? Do we walk up? Do we stay in our seats? Do we kneel? Do we stand? What do we do? Who can partake? Most Bible scholars say only believers, and I agree. But it's entirely possible Judas was still there. We don't know. And and some people say, well, only the people who are members of your church. Does that mean that other followers of Jesus can't? And what about children? I mean, children ate the Passover meal. And some would say, no, it doesn't really matter. Nobody can until they are baptized and they become members of the church. And if they come from a church that we think is okay, we'll allow them to partake with us. Others say, well, if a child can examine themselves and realize what's going on, it's okay. To be honest, we're not really told. How often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Now, I want to stop there for one second, touch on something we talked a little bit about last week for the benefit of those of you who weren't here last week. We often use that terminology, how often or how, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why do we say we're going to celebrate it and then treat it like it's a grim funeral? If you weren't here last week, you got to listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, we talked about this last week. The Apostle Paul says, For as often, remember those words, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What does he, what does he mean by for as often? I mean, that's not very specific, is it? It's kind of like, I like, dude, give it, come on, man. Give us the instructions. We want the, we want the rules. See, as I observe the descriptive accounts in the Bible, my conclusion is that we are, for as often means, 
anywhere from once a year to once a month to once a week to once a day or some sort of a combination. The question is, does God want us to observe a bunch of rules? Or does he want us to think about what's really going on? Does he want to give us flexibility? Or does he want us to be rigid? I'm not saying I know the answer to these questions. I'm just ruining your week like my week was ruined. (laughs) I've heard many proud people say this. Well, we do it the way they did it in the book of Acts. And they will typically appeal to Acts 20, verse 7, for their reason for doing it once a week. It says this. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Great. What does that mean? Does that mean it's a meal? Does that mean it's communion? Does that mean it's both? Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Does that mean I'm supposed to preach until midnight? And some of them are like, don't, don't answer that. <laughs> he can do it. He can do it. So does that mean that if we really want to be biblical, we stay here till midnight? People are like, we do it once a week. I'm like, easy killer, easy, easy, easy. You say, well, you can't refute that. All right, Acts 2.46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread. Uh, Is that a meal or is that communion? (laughs) Because if you use the last verse for once a week, you got to use this verse for the same terminology for every day. From house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So some people say we do it once a day. Now, some people do it less often. They do it once a month, so it doesn't become routine, uh, because that's very easy for it to happen. If you talk to people who who do it more routinely, you know, every day or, or once a week, they'll say it's become very routine to me. Like It's sort of like, okay, it's almost time to go home. And so it's really, it's not good. It can be, it's a bad place to be. When it becomes routine or there's no type of thought, the meaning can become very much assumed or forgotten. Others have decided, well, you know what? Not everybody that's here is a Christian and I'm afraid there's non-Christians that are going to take it. Well, it's just grape juice and bread then. So others just have a separate believer service. Now, some people say because it was the Passover, Jesus did it one time. So we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to do it once a year. Now, you might object to that. But in one sense, I think that those people make a very valid point. They would say our hearts are prepared, that we are not going through the motions, Though once a year is not our tradition, I have really noticed a lot of times where a lot of you have said to me, Pastor Jim, I can't wait for the Good Friday service. Because if you've ever been to our Good Friday service, everybody knows something really special happens in this room. Notice I didn't say the sanctuary. 
you are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Something really, really special happens. Why? Because I think when it comes to Good Friday, our, our, our hearts are prepared to look at the wonders of the cross. And it's not routine at all that night. There's something really intimately special about that night. As I've been thinking through this the last few weeks, Christian unity is, that is based on the cross of Christ seems to be very, very important to the Lord. And as we said last week, knowing how easily we forget, the Lord gave us an ordinance, the Lord's Supper, to remind us to remember the meaning of the cross, not to engage in senseless, childish debates about different types of methods and procedures. What's really amazing to me is why would Jesus give the apostles communion in the upper room knowing what's coming next? That's what really amazes me. But it is precisely what happens next that makes the Lord's table and its reminder of Jesus' work on the cross absolutely necessary. So Matthew 26, verse 31 through 35, is a passage we looked at briefly about a month ago. We talked about the technique of sandwiching that particularly Matthew and Mark used, but we want to review it again. Verse 31 and 32 says this, Then Jesus said to them, now remember they're out, they sang a hymn and they went out. Then Jesus said to them, All of you, there's 11 of them there now, we know Judas is gone now, we don't actually... Nobody's exactly sure when he left. All of you will be made to stumble. It's the word that we get the word scandalized from. You'll be scandalized by me. You'll be made to stumble. Some versions say fall away. Another version says lose faith. Another version says be brought down. You will be made to stumble because of me this night. They just took communion. They just took communion. With Jesus. For it is written, and he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd, there's the cross, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, there's the apostles. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus says to them, listen, tonight, your pressure's going to be tight. It's going to be tough. And what's going to happen is you guys are going to run away. But here's the deal, man. We're going to end up home. Remember, they're in Jerusalem. They're far from home. They've been there many times, but, but he says, I will go before you to Galilee. We're, we're going to go home. Jesus is just about to be arrested and tried and sentenced to die on the cross. And under the pressure, the apostles are going to have a major, major lapse of faith. It's amazing, isn't it? 
that, that times we can have these great spiritual moments, mountaintop experiences, and then we come down to the real world <laughs> and we find out how vulnerable we are in that moment to a variety of temptations. We're with Jesus, we're up there, we're in the upper room, we're on the mountaintop, we're away, we're thinking, this is it, man, this is it. Jesus, this is it. I am sold out for you, man. I'm not going to do that other dumb stuff that I used to be. I'm changed, I'm new. Man, five minutes later, <laughs> you know, you leave church, you're like, yeah, I'm not going to, it's going to be different. That's why we tell you to come up and pray with people, because it's probably not. <laughs> You get out on Route 15, you're like, oh, that guy cut me off. <laughs> Wait, these people drive. So it happens so quickly. Notice it will happen to all of them. He says all of you. It's like a trap has been set and fear is going to cause them to flee Jesus. And the reality is, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not, we're really glad that you're here. Really glad. But the reality is that this happens to all of us. Yet, are you listening? You got to hear what I'm about to say. This happens to all of us, yet, it didn't mean that the apostles or you cease to become followers of Jesus. Did you catch that, you who walk around with that guilt complex 24-7? It doesn't mean that you cease to become a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean that you haven't trusted in Jesus or you didn't trust Jesus, and it certainly doesn't mean that Jesus gives up on you. So the question is, how can we be so confident that Jesus will forgive us? Four little words. It is written. That's it. That's it. God keeps his promises. And, it, and it, as bad as what he says is going to happen, seems to be what happens does not happen outside of God's sovereign plan. What does that mean for you and me? That means that whatever has brought you here today to this moment that you really regret or that you just can't seem to kick, that means that God knew it was going to happen and he still loves you and he still has a plan for you. Now, this may seem odd, and many times the things of God do seem odd, but part of your maturing in your faith is realizing how weak and how fragile your faith can be at times. Realizing that actually will have the effect of maturing your faith. In fact, may I be so bold as to say God wants to use your failure to produce a trusting humility in Jesus. 
So right now, some of you guys have some failures running through your mind. And God wants to use them to produce and develop trusting humility in Jesus. For a follower of Jesus, again, odd as it may seem, strengthening often comes through failure. We think, oh, I'll get stronger if I'm successful. Usually doesn't have much of an effect at all. And if you don't believe what I said is true, these guys who are going to scatter are going to become the foundation of the Christian church. There's a very good chance if they don't fail that they get full of pride and Christianity stays a localized religion. But because of their massive failure and the massive failure of the Apostle Paul later on that produced a bold humility in them, they took the gospel to the world. And that's part of the reason why we sit here today. You say, how is it possible? Well, on that night, Jesus faced everything that happened with courage And because of the cross and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that enabled the apostles to change. And my dear friends, if you're willing to let him, he will change you too. So how much is God sovereign and in control? Look what what Jesus says here. He, quoting Zechariah, changes it up a little bit, and he says, I will strike the shepherd. Huh. God talking. I will strike the shepherd. Well, who's the one who called himself the good shepherd? Jesus. Well, who's the one who has the power to strike him? You don't think that's Pontius Pilate talking, do you? In Zechariah, this this shepherd is Yahweh's companion. This shepherd is deity. And so the cross of Christ was clearly the plan of God as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah graphically prophesied in Isaiah 53. And I think the Apostle Paul beautifully explains it to us in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, that's the cross, how shall he not with him also freely, some versions say graciously, Give us all things. Here's the big question. Do you believe that? Don't answer it. Don't answer it. Take it home. Write down on the back of your program, Romans 8.32. And go home. And all week ask this question. Do you really believe it? I'm not talking in your mind. I'm talking in your heart, in your soul, in every fiber of your being. Do you really believe that Jesus, the God who gave up his own son, delivered him up for us? I will strike the shepherd. Do you really believe that he will also freely and graciously give you all things? You see, like the apostles, most of us struggle to believe in the midst of failure. But notice what Jesus says to them. After I rise from the dead, I'll be in Galilee. After I rise from the dead, 
I'm going home. I'm going home. Yet in the next verse, they, we see they totally miss the beauty of everything that Jesus is telling them. Yet Jesus basically says to them, listen, man, I know you're going to fail me, but what I want you to really understand is this. I will never fail you. Though you fail me a thousand times, I will never fail you. This is part of the heart of God that, that we must catch that even before we abandon Jesus with our life or with our lips, he already has a plan to gather us back. Before we even do it, he's got a plan for what it can do in our lives and to bring us back. Even though we fail, Jesus says, when you know you fail and you feel like the biggest failure and you feel like you failed so much, you're almost even dead on the inside. Come home. Come home. That's the gospel message. We are all the prodigal. Come home, Jesus says. And when you come home, he says, I'll go before you to Galilee. I'll go home before you. And when you come home, Jesus says, guess what? I'll be waiting there for you. And maybe, maybe today, maybe today is your day to come home. Maybe today is the day that you realize that you've been far from God. Whether you've never put your trust in him, or maybe you have, but you've just wandered Jesus says, you come home, man. I want you to come home. I'm going through all this so you can come home. Now, to be honest with you, this is one of those sermons and Bible texts. I wish that it ended here. <laughs> like, like, let's sing. Right? All right, we're going home. You know, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Like, let's, let's, let's go. Yeah, but it doesn't. Verse 33, Peter, oh no. <laughs> Peter answered and said to him, now Peter makes a vow. Jesus vowed he's going to die and won't drink of the fruit of the vine until we're all together at his father's kingdom. Now Peter makes a vow and, and says, even if all others are made to stumble. Now I threw in there others because he says, even if all are made to stumble, he's looking at the others guys. He's like, hey, Laban, even if the 10 jokers over here run like cockroaches when the lights come on, Jesus, not moi. Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus says, Peter, that's why I love you so much, man, because I know you can, I can always count on you. That's not what your verse, your Bible says in verse 34. Jesus said to him, assuredly, some of your versions say, truly, I tell you, by now you should know that from Matthew, that's our key to pay double or triple attention. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night, not, not next week, not next month, not next year, not by the time you're 50, Peter. This night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to deny with you, 
I will not deny you. So he makes another vow to Jesus. And then Matthew casually adds, remember he was there. And so said all the disciples. (laughs) I'm going to make Peter look like the bad guy here, not me. (laughs) So what do they all do? They all make a vow to him. So Peter speaks up once again, and it's not good. No way, Jesus. Sorry, God, wrong again. I know you never tell God he's wrong. You're spiritual people, you come to this service. Jesus says um, (laughs) to Peter and to you and me, uh, Pete, Uh, It's going to happen. In fact, it's only going to happen. It's going to happen in only a matter of hours. Now, I think that Peter was sincere, just not very self-aware of his own weaknesses, and especially thinking that he is stronger than others. But Jesus, the great prophet, reveals the heart and weakness of Peter and the other apostles and, and all of us. And there's a great lesson for all of us here, including uh, those of us like Peter that have enrolled in Jesus's leadership development program. They're like, oh, that sounds really great. (laughs) You know, little know you, young Jedi. (laughs) You see, the crossroads of growth and failure often comes down to this, will we be receptive to the Lord's correction and to the Lord's will? Are we really going to believe what he says is true about ourselves? When we are, we grow as followers of Jesus and as leaders. But when we are not receptive to him, or we think that we're more than we actually are, We end up like Peter and the apostles, we fail, and that's part of the school of leadership. So Peter's disloyalty, really, among the apostles will appear to be the worst. But you've got to think about what he's saying to God. And and it's basically, (laughs) this is basically what a lot of people who call themselves Christian say. You know, they, they don't think that they really need a savior, even though they call themselves Christians. This is essentially what I think Peter's saying. If I were writing my own version, I would write something like this. Um, Peter said to Jesus, you know, uh, Jesus, really, who needs the cross when you got faith like mine? <laughs> I mean, really, who needs all this stuff? I mean, I'm strong, man. I mean, they just took communion, and all of them are vowing not to sin. But that, but they do, and and that's why we need the cross, and to remember at the Lord's Supper. Now Judas is gone. He he's off. He's he's doing his thing right now with the religious leaders. Kind of too late for him. But it's not for Peter. It's not for the apostles, and it's not for you. It's not for me. Because it's what happens after we repent that matters. Now, that 
presupposes we do repent. What does it mean to repent? It's simply a, a change of heart and a change of action. For years, in the people, we used to tell people in the church back in the 80s and 90s, it was only just a change of your mind. Well, so, okay, I agree what I do is wrong, but I'm going to go do it again because Jesus will forgive me no matter what I do. That's not repentance. That's presumption. But here's the reality that if, if, we, if we change our heart and we are determined to change our action, if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, what's going to happen to all of our vows? They're going to fail. They're not going to work. You see, in our world, vows and oaths don't really mean very much, does it? They don't really mean, you know, I cross my heart and hope to die, you know. I swear in my mother's grave. Why does she have to die for you? Okay, right? All these things that we say, you know, we're kids. You know, I promise, I promise. I had my fingers crossed. <laughs> I mean, vows and oaths don't really mean much. But in the ancient world, vows were extremely important. And you just did not break a vow. You just didn't do it. And often vows would be sealed in blood. Let me give you my favorite example of this from Genesis chapter 15. God's hanging out with Abram. He becomes Abraham. So if I, call, if I interchange the names, please don't hold it against me. He's hanging out with him. And um, he says to him, hey, if you just go where I tell you, he didn't tell him where he's going. He's just like, just go. Just like, you know, come home to his wife, you know. Hey, honey, he was talking with the Lord today. He says, we're moving. Really? Where are we going? I don't know. <laughs> you know, where do we leave a forwarding address for the relatives? No idea. <laughs> what did he say? He just said, walk. <laughs> I'll show you. Okay, honey. <laughs> okay, honey. So God says, I'm, I'm going to give you some land. Pack everything up. We know he's a rich guy, had a lot of family, pack everything up and just start walking and I'll show you. And and Abraham, Abram says um, this, he says, well, how shall I know that I'll inherit it? Now, many of us were raised with this. You're never allowed to question God. Nobody told the Bible writers that. A lot of those of us were raised with we're never allowed to get mad at God. Nobody ever told the Bible writers that. Must have missed that one. So what does he say? What does he say? How shall I know I, how shall I, know I shall inherit it? What, what is he saying? He is saying this to God. How do I know for sure you're going to get me home? How do I know that? I live here. This is, this is my where I live now. This is what I consider home. It's not great, but you're promising me this other thing, this other place that I'm going to inherit it. It's right after the Lord said that it was that Abraham, it's right after the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says to him, how do I know I'm going to get there? How do I know I'm going to get home? So God says to him, let's make a vow. Let's make a vow. Well, how did they do it? Well, they, they, God said, bring some animals and, and cut them in half. So they took the animals and they cut them in half and put them on either side. And there would be this kind of path that you could walk through. And God walks in between them. God walks in between them, which means he's saying to Abram, if I don't keep the vow, 
then I will die. That's what that vow means. If I don't keep the vow, then I will die. Now, here's what's remarkable about this vow. There would be people who would have read that and would be like, I can't possibly believe the Bible. Ancient world people would have been like, I can't possibly believe this. Why? In the ancient world, you could make a vow like this to a king. But never in a billion years would a king make a vow like that to one of his subjects. Never, never, never. A king would never make that vow to you. At the Last Supper, the verses we read earlier, verse 27, and he, Jesus, took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. Now, remember we said in a couple of weeks ago that is is not in Aramaic, so this, my blood, this is symbolic. This represents my blood, not an animal's blood, my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant, which is shed or poured out for the many, for the remissions of sins. We talked about the only way to become part of the many is to put your trust in Jesus for the removal of your sins. Verse 29, but I say to you, then Jesus makes a vow to them, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on, in other words, until after the cross and the resurrection, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So when is he going to do it? When is he going to do it? He's promising, until I'm with you in my Father's kingdom, when my Father freely gives you all things. We have them already, Apostle Paul's theology already, but not yet. Now, notice what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying, if you don't keep my part of the bargain, I will die. He doesn't say that the way the Lord said in Genesis 15. He says, I am going to die so you can be blessed. I am going to die. It is going to happen so you can be blessed. He says, I will die for you because as he tells them in John's gospel in the upper room discourse, which is not in Matthew's gospel, because I am the way to my father's kingdom. And there's just one little condition on that is that you repent and you believe. You repent, you turn to God. You say, I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to change my heart and my actions And you put your trust, you believe, you put your trust in Jesus instead of yourselves. And Jesus says, if that's you, I will bring you home to my Father's kingdom. It's only because Jesus died on the cross that the apostle's sins and ours can be forgiven And it's because of his resurrection that we can be brought to heaven. The Lord's Supper reminds us that because of Jesus' great love and great sacrifice, that a way for proud, arrogant, overconfident self-sinners can be made to get to heaven. 
from failing apostles to foolish failures, the cross of Christ makes it possible to come to a forgiving Savior. And that is the good news that we have to share with the world. The good news is not behave. The good news is come. And while all followers of Jesus at some time will be ashamed of Jesus, know this, my dear friends, Jesus is not ashamed of us. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And when we fail and we return to him, we will find his arms wide open. At the Lord's Supper, we remember all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why it's not a grim funeral. It's a time to celebrate him. Well, let's stand and pray.